0: Now, there's a feeling you may have had, so I want you to imagine it with me. It's not quite guilt, it's a, there's a thing that I should be doing and I'm not doing it and I'm okay with that. You know, exercise, um, not eating the entire packet of Tim Tams, taking out the bin. I mean, I see the bin's full, but I don't take it out. Yeah, I feel a bit bad, especially when I see my flatmate lugging it out. But you know, I get over it, I sleep well at night. You know, it's a thing I should do, but the world will still go on if I don't. Do you know the feeling? Yep. All right. Excellent. Well, I would like to diagnose a problem that I suspect the majority of us here—and I include myself with this—have. We don't read the Bible, or we don't read it enough, or not half as much as we know we should, or it's just become some sort of chore. Um, you know, it's—it's it's one of those things where you know somebody else can do that chore, and on Sundays they can tell me what's in it. Um, I want to preface everything that follows, and I need to hear this too, that there is not any kind of judgment or guilting going on here. This is not a message about behaviour modification. This is a message about relationship. Now, I actually didn't expect at all to speak on this. I had a whole other thought in my head, but when I then went, "I oh, but ask God what he wants to say to us all, he went very clearly, read your Bible. And he wasn't saying, Tavia, read your Bible. He was saying, that's what we all need to do, Tavia included. Um, so I looked at myself, you know, why don't I read the Bible more? And it's not simple. I mean, it's not as simple as say, why didn't I brush my teeth much when I was younger? You know whereas now I have toothbrushes stashed everywhere. I have one in my handbag, there's one in my car, there's one at my desk. I use them. Some days, I brush my teeth more than I read my Bible, okay, so there's no judgment here um, <laughs> So what changed with my teeth? Well, I realised the benefits, the how-to, the need and the consequences for myself and I bought in. Now I am self-driven. So I think it is when we personally get the benefits, the how-to, the need of reading the Bible and the consequences, if we don't, um, for ourselves that things will change because we're self-driven or in fact, relationship-driven which is all very responsible sounding. But you know what really drives humans? Dangerous stuff. Um, The Bible, this book, it is dangerous. The content in this book has brought down empires. It's banned, as you would suspect in North Korea, Uh, Citizens in some Central Asian countries right now have their houses raided by authorities if the authorities think they own one because it is a crime to own it. Uh, In certain African and Middle Eastern countries, it can be very deadly to possess, yet people will still risk their lives to get access to it. When nations try to stop the spread of Christianity, they try to deny people the opportunity to read what the Bible contains. You know, a banned book... The forbidden is always slightly enticing, isn't it? You know, you sort of go, well, what's inside? You know, what, if I open it, if I take a peek, you know, what could be so dangerous? And you might be saying, well, that's just those silly foreign countries. But did you know that it was once illegal to read the Bible in English in England? Uh, In the 1300s, the Navy was sent to intercept vessels as printers tried to smuggle it into the country. Uh, The increase in a powerful evangelistic Christianity, I knew there was a bit that I had to go over before I said it, that was the bit, Uh, in England can be linked to the translation from the Bible in Latin, which only the priests could read, to the everyday tongue accessed by the everyday ordinary person. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? Why? Because it's full of truth. And truth is powerful. Truth is dangerous. It says there is a right and a good and a true, and that is incredibly threatening to the evil and the wrong and the false in our world. And by our world, I mean modern Australia, where Christmas carols, which refer to the Christian Christmas story, are now banned in Victorian state schools. In contrast, when I was in primary school, when I was eight, I was given my first proper Bible. And here it is. It's a New King James, and very well looked after. Uh, It's a New King James. Now, I am not sure that I would give an eight-year-old a New King James, one of the harder-to-read versions, but I was. Um, But what I remember was how it was given to me. It was made clear to me by my parents that this book was precious and important to them. And it looked at too. I mean, you know, all that gold embossing. Um, now, the Bible isn't just important because it is the most printed and downloaded book in the world. And I have some more stats up there about that. Uh, or because it has had more impact on human society than any other. No, the Bible is important because this, this is God's word and it is precious to him. Uh, in Psalms, David says, you have magnified your word above your name and God really cares about his name. There's a whole other sermon in that. And in this book, God, I mean, just get that in your head, God speaks to us. It is not an ordinary book. I mean, we get used to hearing the phrase, the living word, and we're not really connected with what that means, but it means living literally, not just in a poetic way. It means the words in it have life and give us life. And somehow, and this is a mystery to me, the Word is also Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, says John in chapter 1. Now, that is a mystery I don't presume to understand, but it again, it adds to my reverence. So the Bible is dangerous, and it's important, and it's also precious. As I referred to before, the preciousness of this book can be seen by how willingly, such as those in persecuted the persecuted church, risk their lives to obtain it. Now, some of you may have read the book, The Heavenly Man. Uh, It's about a Christian guy in China who um, was put in jail for spreading the gospel and he had no Bible in there. But when he was put on toilet duty, in that septic mess, he found pages from the Bible that someone had been using as toilet paper. So he cleaned them off and he read them and he treated them as precious because he knew that life was in those pages. Pages that people have suffered and died for. That we might have this in our own language. One of the key translators of the Bible was a guy into English was a guy called Tyndale. Now, he was put into jail for translating the New Testament. Ironically, the imprisonment actually gave him time to finish translating the Old Testament. But uh, he was often hungry, he was lonely, he was ill, he was cold. But he kept on because he knew the worth of it. He was also burned at the stake for it. And as he burned, as he burned, he prayed, God, open the King the king of England's eyes. Now, I think God takes a prayer like that, a prayer while someone is burning for God. I think he takes it. I cried when I was researching this yesterday too. I think God takes that really seriously because within three years at King Henry's command, there was an English Bible in every single church in the country. You know, And this this King James version, or the, the older version of it, was for the most part Tyndale's translation. So we shouldn't treat the Bible lightly. But that's actually still not why we should read it. We read, as I said at the start, because of relationship. The foremost reason the Bible is precious is because it speaks of Jesus' death and his sacrifice for us. Now, if you're anything like me, you probably have doubts from time to time about whether you can actually trust this whole Christian thing, you know, and that includes this book. If you were present, I know some of you were, you might recall that last time I spoke up here, I shared how standing over the Book of Kells, which is a beautiful illustrated medieval scripture in Ireland, another patron of the museum declared it was nonsense. You know, it was written by a bunch of humans, it was full of their opinions, and it was full of errors that are collected from copying it over the centuries. And being someone who really loves this book... I did not respond well. I got upset. Recently, my cousin messaged me with similar statements. These these claims about the trustworthiness of the Bible is something you are going to encounter even if you're not already thinking it yourself. So what does the Bible say about itself? Well, I'll have a look at the verses on the screen. It says, "'All of it was given by God, "'specifically by means of the Spirit, not human opinion, "'that it is the Word of God, not made up by humans,' And that it is trustworthy and the truth. So that's what the book says about itself. But I mean, really, are we meant to believe, you know, just just trust the book. How are we meant to believe this comes from God? Well, I might just take a drink for a second. Thank you. Well, if it didn't come from God, how else do we explain the prophecies made in the Old Testament, which were later accurately fulfilled? The number of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, is, it's actually quite staggering. It has been computed that even if eight prophecies, the, the, accurate, the, the probability of even eight prophecies being fulfilled is one chance in 100 million billion. Which, by the way, as you can see up there, is millions of times more than all the people who've actually ever lived. So it's a pretty amazing that even one person to, showed up to show fulfill eight prophecies and Jesus fulfilled heaps more than that like I had I just opened up the first chapter of Matthew and I found without even trying seven uh fulfilled prophecies you know and this is how Jesus fulfilled the da 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 um the chances of all the prophecies about Jesus being fulfilled by Jesus as they were has been calculated as one chance in a trillion 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 Listen to this quote from Lee Strobel's excellent The Case for Christ, which is extremely well-researched and is very easy to understand. So if you want to hear more about this, it's a great book to read. Isaiah revealed the manner of Messiah's birth, of a virgin. Micah pinpointed the place of his birth, Bethlehem. Genesis and Jeremiah specified his ancestry, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from the tribe of Judah, from the house of David. The Psalms foretold his betrayal, his accusation by false witnesses and his manner of death pierced in the hands and the feet and I love this although crucifixion hadn't actually been invented yet and his resurve- resurrection that he would not decay but he would descend on high and on and on and no the Old Testament couldn't have been backwardly falsified because the Jewish community would have called them out on that and no no human could have intentionally gone about and tried to fulfill every prophecy um, There's. There's too many out of human control, specifically, for example, being born in the precise year that Daniel said he would. It's very hard to control the year of your birth. Um, I tried, but, you know, still the year I got. So God backs his case when he says, I, God, wrote the Bible, not humans. You know, I'd like to see you humans try and do that. You can't even predict accurately whether it will rain in two hours' time. Yeah, yeah, we humans, we do have accuracy problems. So how does one respond if we go back to that couple at the book of Kells who said the Bible wasn't true and wasn't copied accurately? Well, here's what I wish I said. Actually... The Gospels were being written by eyewitnesses who knew Jesus really soon after his death, starting in 30 years, which is an eye blink, by the way, in terms of historical figures. Plus, Jesus' existence and major features of his life and all the major features of his teaching are confirmed by a range of trusted secular documents. Compared to other historical documents, there is an unprecedented multiplicity of copies that have survived, which agree with each other. We are talking 5,000 in Greek, whereas it's usually just one or two. And in fact, the nearest text in number has only 560 compared to the 6,000. And in other languages, because the church was spreading quickly, so they were translating it. There are again, they again show that the text has been preserved accurately. There are 24,000 ancient historical copies in existence, aside from the ones in Greek. And that is unrivaled. And do not get me started on the other early writers who are quoting the Bible. We have enough quotes from them to reassemble the whole thing. In terms of accuracy, the Bible we have today matches with the ancient Bible which I got to see, by the way, when I was in Ireland, I got to see these documents, at a purity of 99.5%. So it's not full of errors. And none of that 0.5% affects any major or contentious or even slightly iffy doctrine. Not to mention that archaeology, historical studies, science and psychology and more keep backing up what's in the Bible from the very first verse. This is a trustworthy book. Theologically, Prophetically, historically, the Bible is trustworthy. Yeah, told them. Let's go back in time. Yeah. And because I like it, and it will give me a chance to have a drink, here is a quote from Dallas Willard, a brilliant writer about the Bible. I will read it, but I'm going to take a drink first. It was produced and preserved by competent human beings who were at least as intelligent and devout as we are today. I assume that they were quite capable of accurately interpreting their own experience and of objectively presenting what they heard and experienced in the language of the historical community, and which today we can understand with due diligence. On the divine side, this is the part I really like, I assume that God has been willing and competent to arrange for the Bible, including its record of Jesus, to emerge and be preserved in ways which will secure his purposes for it among human beings worldwide. God is competent enough to do that. I mean, he's God. And anyway, it makes me feel good knowing that this is not just trustworthy, but so trustworthy that I got to use the word trillions. <laughs> so, to recap some reasons why you might want to read, you know, it's, it's dangerous, forbidden material, it's important, it's no ordinary book, but the most printed book in human history. It's full of living words, it's a book so precious that people have died for it, and it's about the one who died for us. And so trustworthy that I got to use the word trillions 13 times in a row. But really, how does this benefit you and me? And so it's famous. So God loves it more than he loves his own name. But how will it make my life better, I hear you asking? Excellent question. All right. On my holidays, I spent time trying to true a bicycle wheel, which is to make it a true circle. That is my hand. That is my old bike. So I tried to make it a true circle and I failed. It is hard Uh, because the, the spokes pull the wheel in different directions and if one is pulling too much, the wheel isn't a true circle anymore. And so I had to keep adjusting different spokes and each time before I would make an adjustment, I would spin the wheel and I would look at it very closely to see where it wasn't circular against a measure of what was clearly circular and true. And then I would make an adjustment. The Bible gives us a clear standard of what is right and true. It's a straight line in a crooked world. And the practical fact is we need it. Just like my teeth, my Christian faith needs constant maintenance because decay is part of this world, whether it's my teeth or just, you know, I won't naturally keep doing what is right. But if I keep my eyes on the ideal, you know, the true Jesus, referring to him, I will see the clear standard for the best life I could have and I will want to match my life to that. I will course correct. James also uses the analogy of a mirror. There's a verse up there, uh, but basically he says, look, if you look into a mirror and you see something on your face and you don't do something about it, it's basically the same as reading the Bible and not acting on it. The Bible keeps us on track. It reminds us of the things we need to be reminded of, you know, who we are, who he is, why we're here. And it will help us stand firmly and not, as Hebrew says, let strange teachings lead us astray. Because we will know what the truth is, we are less likely to be at the mercy of the world's whims, fear or ignorance. When the world says wrong is right and good is bad, as it does right now in Australia, we'll know the difference. Rather than, as Hosea says, being destroyed for lack of knowledge, we'll be able to answer those who have questions and even mockery. Knowing, as it says in Colossians, how to give the right answer to everyone. It's because we're holding out the word of life. And we're keeping safe, as it says in Revelation, what we have so that no one will rob us of our victory prize. The practical reality is our lives, certainly mine, are often messed up and falling apart. I mean, we need what is in this book. Some days we just need to rest our eyes on the pure and the good and the unbroken. When all the world is offering is chaos and noise and evil. I mean, some days we need to fix our eyes upon the goal towards which we're striving, that it will not always be like this, to gain encouragement through vision of the future perfect. 1 Peter says, Filled with a living hope, you look forward to possessing the rich blessings that God keeps for you. And there's some days I need to hear about those rich blessings. I need to read the Bible, because otherwise I'm missing out on things I need. And I don't like missing out. Now, one of my favourite TV shows is a sci-fi series created by J.J. Abrams called Fringe. Uh, My flatmate had seen me watch it. I told her it was brilliant. She wasn't interested, and I didn't push it. Now, my flatmate is a skilled binge watcher of TV shows. That's when you watch episode after episode after episode. Now, it's because she works hospital shifts and she needs to use it to help her get to sleep at odd hours. Um, recently, she was sick for several weeks. And thank you to the women of Worth. She is now better. So thank you for praying. Um, and she had used up all her own TV shows. And she was bored. I mean, she was really bored. So I was, so I went, well, you know, fringe. And she went, all right. And she watched it. And she loved it. And the thing was, it had been available to her the whole time. It's just sitting there on the shelf, all five seasons, uh, which she worked through, by the way. Um, Sometimes we don't realise, till we try something, how good it is, you know, salted caramel. And I'm sure you have your own, yes, I'm sure you have your own experiences of that, you know, maple syrup with bacon. Um, (laughs) Everything with bacon, yeah. Um... (laughs) So let me share you some, with you some things you are missing out on. Blessing. I like blessing. I want more blessing. You want more blessing? Yeah? I, I, just a couple people. Okay. Well, I'll speak to them. Um, you remember what James said about the mirror? If you look into the Word and you put what it says into practice, you will be blessed. Uh, That's what he says in that verse that I had up there. In Revelation, John says, blessed, or in the Good News version, happy is the one who reads this book, and happy are those who listen to the words of this prophetic message and obey what is written in this book. Do you want to succeed wherever you go, just like in a motivational seminar? Well, Joshua says, obey the whole law, don't neglect any part of it, and you will succeed wherever you go. He continues, study it day and night, make sure you obey everything written in it, then you will be prosperous and successful. You know, blessed, happy, prosperous and successful. It's no surprise they call it good news. But wait, I nearly put up a picture of steak knives. There's more. This book is filled with thousands of years of other people's experience, not to mention the wisdom of God. Now, I could do with that kind of insight. There is no more satisfying way to learn than by benefiting from others making mistakes that you don't have to make. They're made for you, like a ready meal, but actually good for you. And they're often embedded in fascinating life stories. I love this story. There's one guy who was so stubborn, it took a talking donkey, a literal talking donkey to get his attention. And I'd also, I'd really like to hear a sermon about the story of Elisha, the youths who teased him, and the bear he set on them. This week, the Bible teaches us, don't mess with bald guys. I thought that would go down well at Vineyard. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Eugene Peterson, the writer of The Message, puts it this way. I'll let you read actually for a moment while I have a drink. So he says, Memory is a data bank we use to evaluate our position and make decisions. We need more data to work from than our own experience can give us, the centuries of experience provided by our biblical ancestors. A Christian who has David in his bones, Jeremiah in his bloodstream, Paul in his fingertips and Christ in her heart will know how much and how little value to put on her own momentary feelings and the experience of the past week. To remain willfully ignorant is to start everything from scratch. Biblical history is a good memory for what does and doesn't work. And the Christian who makes use of it avoids repeating old sins, knows the easiest way through complex situations and instead of starting over each day, continues what was begun in Adam. Now, I don't know about you, but I need all of that. I need all the help I can get. Because as you've probably guessed, we don't just become Christian and are done, like a ready meal. There is a process described in the word called sanctification. Now, I want to make it clear that's sanctification, not sanctification. Santification is where you put on a red suit. I spelled it wrong here, which is why I said that. Um, It means God doesn't leave us in our messed up state. He is calling us to holiness. Now, we don't need to be holy to be saved, and we ought to even get into heaven, okay? It isn't salvation plus. But part of our calling is being made into God's masterpieces. We don't have to wait to heaven to be restored. It begins while we're here on earth. That's what the kingdom is. It's eternity beginning right now. So we're called to mature and grow. And the closer we get to God, the more it happens. And that's something we can actively participate in. Jude 20 exhorts us, keep on building yourself up. And we can do that by reading God's word because it works in us. In John, Jesus made the link. He said, we are sanctified in the truth and your word is truth. So, okay. I've diagnosed that we need to be self-driven to read the Bible Now, I'm not sure if you were fascinated by its danger, wowed with its importance, impressed with its perfect truth and trustworthiness and attracted by its benefits. But I actually have another diagnosis. Maybe we don't read the Bible because we're not quite sure how. You know, it it may be that you're a new Christian, you're just new to this. Or nobody actually showed you how to read the Bible. Or maybe it's just always been a chore. Now, as I said, reading the Bible is all about relationship so that should be our approach. Just as I don't see reading texts from my friends as an obligation, ideally, we wouldn't read, wouldn't, wouldn't read the Bible and we wouldn't regard that as a duty. You know, and I don't you know, read my mate's text to you know, get a tick on my friend's report card. Um, so I shouldn't read my Bible to get a tick from God. We read the Bible for us so we can get to know him better. Now, there's something that I only really got while I was preparing this message. So this is fresh Tavia learning. And it makes, I've just found it made such a difference in the last few weeks. I'd always sort of read the Bible and then prayed. But actually, before you read, pray. Invite the Holy Spirit to illuminate what you're reading. Now, we know the Bible is God's Word. And somehow Jesus is the Word. But it was the Holy Spirit who imparted God's Word to the writers. That's said in 1 Corinthians. Um, Preacher R.T. Kendall says be on good terms with the Holy Spirit and he advises that if your mind is wandering while you read, well maybe, maybe check your relationship. Is this something you and God and the Holy Spirit need to, you know, deal with? Because the Bible in all sorts of places keeps on repeating we need the Holy Spirit as our companion, as our guide and as our teacher while we read. 2 Corinthians says... The veil covering our minds and our understanding as we read is removed by the Holy Spirit when a person is joined to Christ. That's why people who aren't Christians, they read it and it just doesn't mean anything to them. It's because they don't have the Holy Spirit making sense of it. So before you read, and I've been doing this, ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand what you read, to to give you insight or just say, you know, look, I am not going to understand unless you show me. A colleague at work put it this way. Teach me what I don't know and show me what I don't see. I just love that. I just think it's so beautifully put. On a practical level, perhaps just say, look, Lord, reveal to me what's going to help with my day ahead, you know, because you're creating an opportunity for God to speak to you. Writer David Kraft puts it this way. I set the stage for God to whisper in my ear, tell me he loves me, guide me in important issues and decisions, and confront sin in its various and often subtle manifestations. Now, here's something else um, about reading the Bible with the Holy Spirit, with the presence of the Holy Spirit as we read, that I discovered while I was doing research for this. I was looking up swords because, as we know, as it's described in the armour of God, um, the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. That's in Ephesians. Well, interestingly, traditional swords, like the swords they would have had in the Bible, were made of carbon steel, which can rust. And they need to have a light layer of oil on them all the time. And oil, as some of you may know, is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So I just love that, that whole, you know, the the Spirit and the Word working together. But apart from the Spirit's presence and the approach of reading the Bible as part of building a relationship, what else can help? Well, before I get my students to read a text at school, I am actually trained to give them a context and the overall picture in which to place the text. Because a huge amount of research has shown that it hugely increases the grasp they have of what they read. And so if it works for kids at school, it should, you know, help us as we read the Bible. And the internet is full of resources. Um, One cool one I discovered is the Bible Project. Um, I just found this as I was doing a bit of research to see if there was stuff there for you. Um, It's on YouTube and it summarises Bible books through animation, as you can see, and sort of gives a bit of their historical context. Um, It's kind of interesting, so, you know, that might be one you want to look at. Now, I'm aware there might be some of you here who you've actually never read the Bible at all. This is a great point to talk to your kinship leader because there's, there's heaps I could have said about this. I cut out loads. Uh, they're a great person who can give you guidance about you know, what book to start with. Um, you know Genesis is great, but it gets to get heavy at Leviticus. <laughs> yeah, it's people going, yes, we know. <laughs> All right. And as you read, mark what speaks to you. Your Bible is allowed to look highlighted, written on and used. Let's see, it's probably more the New Testament where I have stuff written in it. Um, Because, you know, you're responding to a relationship, Or, if you want, you can have a journal where you can record your responses. Maybe a verse, a great truth, something God is saying, something you want to pray about, or something you want to do. Perhaps you have a question. Perhaps it's okay not to understand all of this. Perhaps I just don't get that bit. Or uh, something you don't agree with. I occasionally go, I'm not sure I agree with that. I need to know and understand more about the context. Uh, What do you mean women aren't allowed to preach? You know, I did look that one up. Uh. (laughs) All right. Um... Uh, where am I Um, and these are these are things you can look up later or also you can ask about in kinship Uh, kinship is a great place to ask more questions now have you ever felt like you're reading the same passage over and over I have I have definitely I'm like seriously I am stuck in one spot what the heck Um, but you know God may have a purpose in that Um, sometimes we need to hear something over and over again in a particular season and that is okay. You don't have to be in a rush to finish it. It'll be there for eternity. That's in the Bible too. Now, have you ever found yourself chewing over an incident that's happened in your mind? You know, why did they do that? Oh, why did I say that? Oh, I can't believe I did that. You know, meditating over all the things you wish you had said rather than what you actually said. Well, that kind of mental chewing the card is meditating on something, and we are encouraged to meditate or chew on scripture, to have that as our mental wallpaper. In John, 1 John, it says, keep the message in your heart, and Joshua says, the book on your lips. Now, to have the message in your heart is to have it memorised. If it's in your heart, then the Holy Spirit can remind you of verses when you need encouragement. If it's in your heart, then the Holy Spirit can bring that scripture to mind when you're praying for someone and seeking a word of knowledge for them. But, you know, memorization—that that is a bit intimidating. Have you ever wondered how actors learn all those lines, you know, those long speeches? You know, does it look hard? Well, let me let you in on a little drama secret. I'm a drama teacher, by the way. It's not. It just takes time and effort and the threat of embarrassment in front of large numbers of people. It's very motivating for teenagers. For everyone actually. Um, basically, if you want to memorise something, you just repeat it over and over. Uh, you add a few more words each time and then a bit later, maybe the next day, you see what you can remember and revise the bits that need polishing. That's memorization. Um, God does this too. God is constantly repeating key ideas he wants us to get in the Bible. At the start of Joshua, uh, in one speech, Joshua, God tells Joshua, do not fear three times, like almost literally in a row. It's like, do not fear do not fear. And then just a bit later, and by the way, do not fear. Get it in your head. Uh, Jesus did this. So, you know, there's one day and he feeds the 5,000. Excellent. Great miracle. The, The disciples are like, wow. Literally within the next few days, the disciples are like, ah, we have all these people to feed. What shall we do? And Jesus is like, No way, we just did this. I just covered this. I told you, I do not remember the. He's pointing. Do you not remember the loaves and the fishes and the baskets? No, all right, let me repeat myself. (laughs) As well as this, God wired our mouths to our memories so that if we say grouped words out loud often enough, they will stick in our brains as that group. That's advertisers use this, you know, oh, what a feeling. Toyota. You didn't need me to say Toyota, you knew it. And that's why we can remember the words to songs we sing. But to head back to meditating, if you're artistic, and you know what, even if you're not, can I encourage you to transform verses and stories from the Bible into dance, art, drama, film, music, because this will not only help you unpack and understand the verses better, but they can powerfully reach people as they slip through their defences. A piece of artwork can quickly tell a whole story and talk about what you're reading. In fact, what I want you to do right now is turn to someone next to you or nearby and share a verse that you either love or just that you can remember and explain why it sticks in your head. Go for it. All right, I reckon, and then some of you are still talking and that's fine, that some of you are going to remember what that person told you and not my sermon, and that's okay. <laughs> because you've remembered a piece of scripture. So I've had some success. All right. So far, I've diagnosed two possible causes, that we don't read the Bible because we aren't sold on why we should, or we aren't sure actually how to do it. But you know, I think it's time to say something that we all know. It feels like an effort. I have to read my Bible. Ugh. It has somehow got lumped in with the chores. Somehow, reading the most dangerous, important, helpful, precious, trustworthy book on earth, a book which will help draw us into an ever-deepening relationship with the creator of the universe, where we will experience the best life has to offer and become the masterpieces God intended, somehow we have it in our heads that this is a form of drudgery that is best gotten over quickly and avoided if you can get away with it. Ugh, so much effort. I love that picture of that dog. Uh, Gee, you know, it's in our heads we do think of it that way. And yet, I've said it's about relationship. Relationships can be great. They can also point out our flaws, hold us to a higher standard, and frankly, demand things of us like taking out the rubbish. The Bible demands that we think about what we're reading and do something about it. That is why we can spend hours watching TV, on Facebook, reading a magazine, because they don't demand anything of us. We simply consume. And that is a valid way to relax. But if I want to mature and grow any relationship, I need to engage. But we all have an enemy who does not want us to grow or mature. So he has you and me suckered on the biggest lie of all. It's just the Bible. It's dull. It's such a big lie because we know deep down this is a threatening book. It threatens our lifestyle, our comforts, our identity, our little sins and our big ones. And it threatens to change everything, to invade every precious corner of our lives, to embarrass us as it urges us to be different and worse, look different in front of other people as we stand up for what is right. And even worse than that, it won't even let us be comfortable at home when we're watching those shows and looking at those things on our computer screens. It's all invasive. It's cleaning us out. It is changing us completely into a masterpiece. The Bible is not boring. It's dangerous because the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest of two-edged swords. It cuts between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, exposing our innermost thoughts and desires. It is dynamite, which is very safe on the shelf, when you're not reading it, but deadly to the flesh, near the lit flame of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I should go forwards, not backwards. The convicting power of the Holy Spirit is a threatening thing, and it's not just threatening to us. The devil is terrified of you opening this book while you are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Because when you're under the influence, you start to thrive in a way that is dangerous to the enemy. So the enemy does everything he can to stop you reading. He tries to tell you, it's dull, there's not enough time, you can't fit it in. Now, I I get being busy. I also definitely don't spend all my time wisely. But if I don't take charge of my time, there is a whole world of people willing to take charge of it for me. And the enemy has plenty of things, good things, to fill up our lives with. But if I am too busy to find time to read and grow my relationship with God, then one of those good things, it has to go. I may need to sacrifice something I enjoy, I probably need to make an effort to be more organised. I'm talking to myself here. I may have to say no to things, and it's going to be different for each one of us. But the question is, am I real about this relationship with God being the most important thing in my life? I mean, putting aside self-benefit, interest, the Bible's intrinsic value, whether we find it an effort or dull or not, if Jesus is our Lord, we are his apprentices, followers who want to be just like him. And we learn about what he was like here in the Bible. And in this book, he gave us commands to follow. One John says, we know we love God when we obey his commands and his commands are not too hard for us. So is he Lord or not? I mean, are we for real about this or not? In Dallas Willard's opinion, more than any single other thing, the practical irrelevance of actual obedience to Christ accounts for the weakened effect of Christianity in the world today. So are we real about following Jesus or not? Maybe it just will help if you think of reading the Bible as a fact of life, a fact of obedience, a thing you must do every day, brushing your teeth, uh, it's showering, it's deodorant, it's changing your underwear. Things we do every day, I hope, and we don't complain about it. We just do it. I mean, little kids complain. Why do I have to? Because I said so, says mum. Why do we have to read the Bible? Because Jesus said so. And because he did it too. I mean, if we're his followers and we want to do what he did, Jesus clearly knew his Bible. He regularly, constantly quoted from it. So Jesus must have spent his time memorizing the word. In fact, there's only one point that I could find where he read from a physical text, and that was when he was quoting Isaiah and he announced his mission. So the rest of the time it was all in here. And he also modeled using the word as the sword of the Spirit. Um, In chapter four, when Jesus was tempted, he used scripture to deal with temptation. Now, if Jesus, who in Revelation is described as having a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, so it's a pretty scary guy, uh, needed his Bible to fend off his enemy, I totally do. Now, I have one final diagnosis. Why, even after being told all this, we might still make excuses, not to anyone else, but just to ourselves, of why we will do other things rather than read the Bible. It is that the Bible can seem irrelevant when compared with the more pressing reality of life, the reality where you have kids, where you've got to go to work, and so forth. Well, let's look back at the people who first encountered the content of the New Testament when it was being spoken to them by Jesus and then later by the apostles. They didn't experience the early message as, obey this or you'll go to hell, and that's why we're doing this, and otherwise having no connection to the real world. Instead, there was an urgency to people's response. They recognised that their real world had been invaded through the presence and words of Jesus with the reality even more real than their real world. As Jesus unpacked the Testament for them and told stories... They began to understand that this this kingdom that was now invading their real world was something vital. It was important and it was essential and above all relevant to their real world. That his words, which Jesus described as spirit and life, his words were full of wisdom for real things. Right now, their everyday lives and that they would be fools to disregard it. Uh, We see the response in Acts over and over. We need to respond, we need to do something about these incredibly relevant words we're hearing and then they would get baptised and their lives would radically change. It is a lie that the Bible is irrelevant to our real life and that may be the hardest of all the things I've said for you to accept. It is the most relevant thing we can read. It is for our everyday life. It helps us where we are right now. It isn't whosoever believes in him will go on much as before but have to read their Bible. No, it is whosoever believes in him, as Willard put it, would not lead a futile, failing existence, but have the undying life of God himself. This is the most dangerous and powerful book in the world. It has impacted the world like no other book because it is about the person who has impacted history like no other. I mean, royalty, they're the sort of people we talk about in history books. When Wills and Kate came to town... I had a free afternoon, and I thought, oh, you know, what the heck, and I drove down. And I was actually, I was practically front row, and, you know, it was just kind of fun waiting, chatting to people. It was very hot, and occasionally it was boring because they were running late. And every now and then we'd think, oh, this is them, and it wasn't. And this happened, like, a few times, Till finally it was them, and they were like, you know, just Prince William was standing right in front of me, and all I could do was go, oh, oh, he's moved on. I should take a picture. Uh, that was a picture. Oh, it's, well, it didn't come up very clearly, but uh, that is the picture I took. Um... You know, because what do you say? When What do you do? When, you know, a famous person, there is, there's definitely part of our brain or our soul or our hearts or something that is tuned to worship something. And our culture trains us to worship famous people because Satan is very well aware that we're created this way. And we see this in the Bible too, um, the way that people in the Bible talk about David and Saul. They were famous. But the people who met with God, they also react this way. They want to talk about it. It isn't all, well, yes, you yeah. know, God spoke to me, but I, you know, I don't want to be too, no, they were like, I want to talk about this. You hear it in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New, in the same tone as I was like, I got to meet Prince William and this is what he was like and it was really cool. They're like, I got to meet God and this is what he was like and it was really cool. That's the first four books of the New Testament. I got to meet God and this is what he was like. I mean, do you want to know more about God, the one that you're in the relationship with? Read the final chapters of Job. Job got to meet God, the director of all creation, while God was riffing on the question, so human, you want to know who I am and what it's like to be behind the scenes? Well, let's go. And it's pretty interesting. Earlier this year, a friend at work, I get to share an office with that guy, um, got to meet and interview Samuel L. Jackson, and his wife got to briefly meet Quentin Tarantino, because he's a film critic, and they were at a press gathering for The Hateful Eight. He Facebooked it and we asked all sorts of questions. You know, what are they like? What do they say? You know, we, were asking, we were probably still asking questions because um, we're interested in famous people. We want to know more about them. Well, John and, and Matthew and Mark and Paul and James, they got to meet Jesus, the one you are or are thinking about being in a relationship with. Do you want to hear what they have to say? I mean, Jesus was a fairly interesting person. He said he was God. Uh, he told people to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Um, His family tried to commit him to the 30 AD equivalent of an insane asylum. People ripped the roofs off houses to get to him. He walked on water. He raised people from the dead and, oh yeah, you know, raised himself after raiding hell and saving humanity. He is probably the most famous person on earth, 2 billion Christians and counting, or about 33% of the world's population. The cross he died on, and I've looked this up, is the world's most recognised symbol – Every day, his, his name is used as a curse word probably more than any other. And every single person on earth accepts that it is the year 2016 since he was born. You know, he sounds like an interesting guy. He might have some interesting things to say. And that is who you have an eternal relationship with if you're a Christian. The one who has impacted history like no other. And this is his book. And if we follow him, we read it, simple as that.